substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast. We're here for another midweek episode. A lot of these have been about the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Uh, we've had a, a number of uh, experts through, um, different people to talk about it as the atrocity continues. I'm joined by my co-host this evening, Josephine Vargis. How are you going? Yoda, um, not bad. I'm glad that we are continuing our discussions on this and I'm not glad by the fact that there is no action so far. And so the atrocities continue and that is unacceptable. So we do need to continue these discussions. And we're also joined by a special guest, uh, Tamim Shaltone. How are you doing, Tamim? Hi, Kiora. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm okay, I guess. It's 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 always great to speak about what's going on in Gaza because we don't often have these opportunities. So I really appreciate uh, talking to you today about it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. Uh, maybe just to start, uh, do you want to quickly introduce yourself to me um, and let our audience know where you come at this issue from? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I came to New Zealand in 2014, so it's almost nine years so far. Uh, originally, I'm from Palestine. Uh, my parents, they came from two different places in Palestine. My mom, she came from Safad, that's that is north of occupied Palestine, and my dad from Aled, 16 kilometers from Tel Aviv, today's Tel Aviv. Both families on both sides were expelled from Palestine in 1948. Uh, my mom, she was, uh, her family, they were expelled north, towards north, so they went to Syria. My mom, she was born in Damascus in a refugee camp, capital of Syria. Uh, my dad, my dad's family, they went to Gaza where my dad was born in a refugee camp in a tent again. Then they went to Jordan. My parents, they married in Jordan. That was where I was born. And yeah, raised in Jordan. That's basically, that is my background. Thank you so much. We, you know, and, and you, what's the word for it, prefaced this, Josephine, um, in regards to what's been happening in the world, but also particularly in New Zealand. We have been continuing to to try and platform discussion about what's happening in Gaza on the podcast but we have seen very little action and and uh, you know as as well as that in the wider community there have been protests and marches every single week across the country uh with larger and larger numbers of people thousands of people turning out to demand a ceasefire from our decision makers but as you said just yeah. nothing has really been happening. It feels somewhat like both Labour and National are using the fact that they haven't formed a government yet to dodge uh, making any decisions about this. Uh, abject cowardice. I, I want to be very clear about that. The current uh, statements we have on the record are from Chris Hipkins saying he doesn't think a ceasefire is uh, plausible. Um, or likely, uh, and that he doesn't know if there are war crimes happening in Gaza because he's not there. From Christopher Luxon, the incoming prime minister, provided they managed to form a government, he has said he hasn't been shown advice on that. He hasn't he hasn't been briefed, so he's not willing to say anything about it. Meanwhile, we've had uh, both the Green Party and the Party Māori come out with very strong statements about a ceasefire. 
uh, from both parties and the part Māori has called for the for expelling the Israeli ambassador and the US ambassador as well. Mm-hmm. But then in both Labour and National, I think I've seen one or two MPs who have spoken out calling for a ceasefire or said they support a ceasefire. And then on the National Party side, we've also seen uh, Christopher Bishop just be incredibly nasty to constituents who are emailing him, uh, asking him to support a ceasefire, just getting right up in their face and using some really nasty propaganda uh, language. And this is the guy who's third on the list for the National Party. So we'll have quite a high place um, in any incoming government. What's been your, I don't know if response or analysis is, Mm. is even correct at this point because it's so fucked. Yeah. The media, the media blackout is something that, you know, I'm, I'm going to call it a blackout because they are not really representing our voices. I wrote a piece on the 26th of October. I sent it out to a number of media groups. They didn't, they didn't publish it. And, you know, I am hearing about how the media is censoring and changing the narrative um, in favor of one particular side and the interests of, you know, one particular side, completely ignoring the humanity of Palestinian people. You know, Tamim, you said, you know, you came to New Zealand in 2014 from Palestine. I came to New Zealand in 2014 from the southern part of India, a place called Kerala. We have a, a very long um, history of left-wing politics in Kerala. And we have, you know, traditionally stood with um, Palestine. And this is not just the history of Kerala, this is also the history of India, especially after the independence. So the Nakba happens one year after India gets independence from the British. And the first prime minister of India, who was one of the key leaders of the independence struggle in India, uh, said this about the Palestinian problem. The problem of Palestinian is essentially a nationalist one, a people struggling for independence against imperialist control and exploitation. Um, So there is a lot of clarity coming from uh, anti-colonial leaders across the world um, during that time. And and thereafter, we, we're looking at, you know, people like um, Nelson Mandela saying, you know, our freedom means nothing until Palestinians are also free. How the media is distorting it and how the West has tried to change these views in the global south is also is also quite significant, is a significant occurrence in my view. Anthony Blinken recently visited India, trying to get India sort of away from the rest of the BRICS countries, closer to the United States. Um, After, in 1991, India adopts neoliberal um, reforms, uh, you know, under the pressure of IMF, which is a body that is, you know, a proxy of the Western interest, Western capitalist interests in the world. And since, since then, we are seeing uh, countries like India moving closer towards the United States and away from its traditional commitment to other uh, people who are who who have a similar a similar experience. And, you know, the media plays a huge role in this shift of opinion. And so I'm really appalled by, you know, the Indian right wing and their response to this, but also globally what the Western media is doing in terms of this crisis. It's a repetition of what we saw, for example, in Iraq, right? In Iraq, one million people died. Um, 
as a result of Western lies, right? We see this happening in Afghanistan, how the United States funded and armed the Mujahideen, who later became the Taliban. And as they left there after 20 years of their invasion, they take away the reserves of that country. So uh, the struggle of the Palestinian people is inherently linked to the struggle of colonized people across the world. And so when we see, say, free Palestine, it's not just about Palestine. It's about oppressed people across the world. And I am appalled by the fact that the media is completely ignoring the crisis and the humanitarian catastrophe of millions of people in the region. Absolutely. And if I pick up from the last thing that you mentioned, it's not just Palestinians or slash Arabs or slash Muslims by extension who relate to Palestine. Basically, it's a huge groups across the world, the global south, oppressed groups, colonized groups, anyone in life who experienced slightest oppression can relate to Palestine and Palestinians because they can see it. So people, they no matter where they live, they look at Palestine and they relate to that case and they project that case on their own experience with oppression. With I don't know, all sorts of oppression, uh, people can relate to, to the Palestinian experience with it. It's, it's very clear-cut case of colonialism, despite what other people would like us to believe that, oh, no, it's complicated. I, yes, there are many layers to it, but the but the essence of it is, is clear-cut. Like, you know, just think about it. I'm a Palestinian here. My home, my physical home in Palestine is stolen. We got kicked out as someone is living right now in our place, in our home. You know, there's no there's no middle ground. There's no dispute. You know, it's it's obvious what is going on. And people just, you know, just invent all these complexities around it in order to avoid dealing with that fact at the at the at the core of the at the core of the issue. Yeah. Uh, now, what what's happening is, I think we have like a, a huge struggle right now in the world where all these people who relate to Palestinian to the Palestinian struggle against oppression, they can see it in their eyes. What's happening? You know, it, it's it's just crazy. It's it's live on air, real time genocide. You yeah. you can see it. So so all these people, they see this, they relate to it, they want to stop it, and they feel it's the only moral choice that that you know any decent human have against a few ruling class. Supporting by supported by major media who think otherwise. So it's just I think it's this is the struggle at the moment. And Kyle, I think you mentioned this today. It's no longer us versus them. It's like it's uh, uh, sectional. Like uh, us and them is uh, actually is here in New Zealand. It's in the US. It's across the world the, the, between the people and the ruling class and media. This yeah. is the struggle. Yeah, and I think the minute we break that. I don't know, uh, balance or not balance. Yeah, maybe balance between these two sides in one country is going to be like dominoes where, you know, it, it, every people will get in, inspired in other places and it's, it's going to be a huge wave. And in my opinion, mm. that is why the ruling class across the world, they realize that actually Palestinians shouldn't get their freedom because if they get it, many, many, many people will get inspired and it's going to be a huge thing. It's like, you know, like the Arab Spring, essentially, but this is about a world spring. So that's why 
it's becoming like a world war being being fought at the moment. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm not sure yeah. where I was <laughs> going with this. I just want to yeah. add to that. So it is a struggle between the people and the ruling class. And it is this is evident from, for example, trade unions across the world lining up to support the Palestinian cause. We are seeing workers in the United States stopping cargo ships uh, of weapons to the to Israel. We are seeing, uh, you know, trade unions of construction workers in India refusing to replace Palestinian workers who have been cut off of their permits uh, to work in, you know, uh, Israel, which is a capitalist state. And uh, Palestinians have as across the world, what ca- capitalism does is the people at the receiving end of um, colonialism and capitalism are proletarianized. By by this, what I mean is they are made the cheap workers for the capitalist class. And this happened in, in New Zealand. Um, so um, there was a deliberate proletarianization of Maori in New Zealand through the confiscation of land and thereafter the establishment of a capitalist economy. So once you lose your means of production, which is through your land, you, you, you create a livelihood through land and natural resources. Once that's taken away from you, you have to become dependent on your oppressors for livelihood. And so uh, Palestinian permits to work in Israel have been cut off and um, they have been, uh, Israel has been trying to create a deal with India to replace the Palestinian workers with Indian workers, but Indian trade unions are coming out and saying we will not replace the Palestinians. So we are seeing a moment of solidarity among trade unions across the world. There was a very strong statement from um, academics. I mean, this was not from the TEU, but from, um, I think, a, a scholar in o- Auckland University. I think his name is Dylan Asafo. Um uh, he's a law lecturer. He he put out a very good statement because he is an expert in international law where he lays out the international um, sort of, um, uh, what do you say, uh, the legal clause that allows people, uh, occupied people, to resist their occupation. So it was a very good statement. And we're seeing these sorts of statements um, being put out by various um, trade unions, workers groups, and so forth. And ultimately, this is a case of capitalist Im- imperialist domination. You can't really uh, separate capitalism and colonialism. These go, uh, Western colonialism, these go hand in hand. And it's a case of taking the land away from Palestinians and creating this, this um, capitalist system there, um, which is also a military s- sort of like What's that guy's name? RFK Jr. He called Israel um, United States aircraft carrier in the Middle East, which I think is a great metaphor for what USA's interests are in propping up this state in, in the Middle East. It is to control that region militarily, to control the, you know, the most important trade routes in the world, such as the Suez Canal, which is right next to this region, um, the Strait of Hormuz, and also this 
hugely resource-rich region, having that military alliance there, that huge military base there, advanced military technology is hugely advantages for the geopolitical interests of not American people, but the American ruling class, the military-industrial complex, the oil lobbies, the arms manufacturers, they are profiting from this genocide. And so this is a moment, and these are the same people, these are the same ruling class who are trying to, you know, pressure governments across the world to neoliberalize, right? So they can privatize our resources, extract uh, the wealth globally and increase their own profits. And so this, you know, this should be a moment for global solidarity among working class people, ordinary folk against this ruling class, which is the global neoliberal capitalist system. And we've seen that, right? We've seen, you know, you've outlined a number of ways that workers, um, academics are standing up. Um, and we've also seen people on the streets from any number of places uh, protesting as well. Because as you said to me, people see their own struggles, their own oppression in what's happening to the Palestinian people. Uh, and for I think for most people, it's quite clear cut that this is a genocide. It's a it's continuing atrocities. I, I think a lot of people perhaps are only aware of what's currently happening and don't have as much of an understanding of the past uh, 75 years. But the urgency and the absolute disaster that's occurring right now is all people need to see, um, to know that it's not complicated. And, you know, even though we've seen this, we're you know, Josephine, you mentioned the media and how it's not, we've had this blackout despite so many people releasing these statements. You know, I don't think Dylan Asafo's um, piece got much media coverage. There's an artist, a New Zealand artist and creators uh, open letter as well that was doing the same, um, hasn't really had any media coverage either. Uh, we've had these marches of thousands of people that are sometimes called just hundreds of people. Um, and but anyone in the community kind of knows that there is this public support for an immediate ceasefire, uh, if not like a, a justice for, for the Palestinian people uh, in regards to what's happened to them um, over the last 75 years. And just recently to me, you uh, and some other people in the community funded a poll of this because this is this is something we haven't seen at all. Really, despite how much the media fucking loves polling people uh, to run a headline, this hasn't, there's been no coverage. There's been no attempts by the media to understand what they're feeling and their audiences. And if it hasn't even been a news hub poll, do you want to ceasefire now um, for all the bots to, to vote on? Uh, do you want to tell us about what led you to do that um, and what the results have been? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's an inspiring part in it, which which I'm really interested in talking about. Uh, so it is something that I have been trying to work on for a while, which is to achieve like self autonomy within the Palestinian community here in New Zealand, because for ages our self determination has been captured by allies. <laughs> now there are good allies like yourselves. And there are allies who are basically savior, like you know, white savior. And and this is this is not a problem in New Zealand only, it's a problem across the Western world. But it's when I came to New Zealand, I saw it 
very obvious that yes, there is a Palestinian community. There are great Palestinians, outspoken Palestinians, but they are their autonomy is captured by allies who are very outspoken and who just want to, you know, to lead the any pro-Palestine work. Uh, so I, I tried to work with with them before, but it just it didn't work out. I I I came to the conclusion that. They're not there for Palestinians. They are there for their own ego, their, their own, you know, activism, career, and these things. Many of them, they are working for Palestine as an extension to their career uh, for the in the apartheid in South Africa. So you know, for them, are yep. So we finished from apartheid South South Africa. So the next step is Palestine, which is great. But at the same time, we need to respect that you know there are Palestinians, and you need to give them autonomy. They need to speak for themselves, and to me, need to be they need to lead this struggle because you know it's 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 ours essentially. So so since that that experience that I had uh, with white saviors. Uh, I started to work with just independently or along with Palestinians, other Palestinians from the community, just trying to form our own groups and organize. And one thing that came up recently is the idea of this poll, because we saw the huge public support in the protests and on social media. It's very evident, but we needed to bring more attention to it because obviously, as Kyle, you mentioned, the media kept saying, oh, a few hundred people while, you know, we're talking about five or six thousand in, in the streets at once. Uh, so so we thought, okay, we need to find a way to quantify that support and just to give it more credibility rather than arguing few hundreds on a few thousands. We need, we need to quantify it. So we came up with this poll idea and you know everyone can relate to polls. We know we do them all the time in New Zealand. So so we thought, okay, let's do it. Uh, now we don't have resources. We are just literally a coalition of random Palestinians, mates, friends. So I went on Twitter and I created a fundraiser. I I didn't say it's for poll. I said it's for a campaign because I didn't want to give away you know what we were working on. And in half an hour, I collected the money. Like everyone was keen to help, even if they didn't have full idea, full details, but they appreciated it. You you cannot say publicly everything in advance. And people chipped in and they helped and I collected the money quickly. So we commissioned Tabit and Mills, very independent. So but you know they don't do this these things for free. So you have to pay for their service. Uh yeah. It it wasn't easy. I mean we had to go through several hoops to create that poll. (laughs) Yep. Perhaps I don't want to talk about what happened exactly at this stage, but yeah, it, it wasn't easy experience. I, I think it's mm-hmm. it's the same struggle that we face as Palestinians. Just to get anything done in this country, you have to fight for it. There's nothing that you can take for granted. Yeah, and we saw the results today. The results were very positive, and they confirmed what we saw on the streets. But this time, in a scientific poll, independent poll, in in, in a, on average, sixty percent of of the polled sample or the polled people said they agree that the New Zealand government should uh, call for an immediate ceasefire versus 12% who disagreed. That is five times, you know, yeah, like five to one, the percentage of people who said, or or the ratio of people who said they agree with an immediate ceasefire. So this is an overwhelming majority and it cannot be ignored it's obvious for everyone that the majority are with an immediate ceasefire and the ruling class, our leaders, they're just going against the will of the people 
to the point where you can call this anti-democratic. You know, we keep talking about democracy and that's one of our, you know, core values, but I don't see it. I, we should go with the with the majority. And this is this is not talking about the moral aspect of it, because, you know, if there's a moral situation, it doesn't matter how many people agree with it. You need to do the right thing, even if just 1% agreed with you, right? Because you need to do the moral choice. We know this. Let alone that it is the majority opinion. So, so there's yeah. no, there's no point, or there's no argument that you shouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, the the loud minority, the twelve percent, it just it's just very small, and, and it's not it's not a less likely or less sensible position. They're calling for a genocide. That's it. So the only choice we have is. Do you want to cease fire to stop the killing of Palestinians? At the current rate, one Palestinian is killed every five minutes and one child every 10 minutes. So, you know, I mean, we have been talking for 40 minutes. Eight Palestinians were killed since we started talking today, including four children. So a call for a ceasefire is to stop this bloodshed. The alternative is a genocide. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not even a moral dilemma to say, ah, oh, is it ceasefire or genocide? Uh, there's no, there's no dilemma here. <laughs> You're either pro-genocide or you are against genocide. In other words, it's a ceasefire. So it's it's pretty obvious. And if you look at the poll, I think it's very interesting. It's not just the majority. It's not just for the left-leaning uh, uh, parties because you know you expect left-wing parties to be more pro-Palestine, but it's even in the right-wing parties. So we have we see it in national, uh, in the New Zealand First and Act, they have a majority calling for a ceasefire, like national party, 59% they agree versus 13% disagree. So it's still five to one, even in national party. Act, 43% agree versus 25% disagree. So almost double, right? Less, less than double. Yeah, so so if you if you are an ACT MP or you are a New Zealand First MP or National MP and you don't want to cease fire, you're going against the majority of your voters. So you really think, need to think about that. So so I, I, I'm glad with the with the results of the poll. It's just it's it it gave us a strong indication scientific independent indication as in where the public is and it confirmed that this is the will of the people this is the will of the majority uh the majority they have moral clarity they know what they want and the government needs to listen and we've been seeing this kind of play out in different ways across the western world you know there have been some of the biggest marches in history um in in the uk and in the us um in spain um, mm. in France. Uh, both Spain and France have now called for a ceasefire. You know, New Zealand is, as a small independent country that leads the way on moral issues, we're lagging well fucking behind at this point. Yeah. Um, in the UK, they're slightly uh, more horrible. There have been some incredible marches there. Uh, they've got a Tory party in government uh, alongside a Labour opposition who... Uh, com- just completely rapacious. But even there, uh, a whole bunch of Labour Party members just in the last 24 hours uh, have broken ranks, resigned uh, some of their shadow ministerial roles and voted against the whip. 
in the US, it's worse again. But you're still seeing so many people out in the streets, you know, and there are even people in media in the US uh, that have been more outspoken on this than almost anyone in New Zealand. You know, it's it really is a, a global phenomenon in terms of support by, you know, the average person or an immediate ceasefire. No, like people cannot countenance this. And some politicians, uh, they understand that and have changed what they were saying in the first couple of weeks. They've, they've moved significantly. And I guess some others have military contracts that they don't want to ruin with the United States or with Israel itself. Because, I mean, particularly in Australia, where they have a Labour government, you'd think this would be an easy decision for them, but apparently not. And the media in Australia has been probably as bad as in New Zealand. Yeah, there was a, a recent interaction between the media in Australia and a UN a human rights legal expert. That was incredible. That was, yeah, amazing. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the expert, but... Uh, Francesca Albanese. Oh, yes. And she's visiting Auckland, I think, um, this coming week. So, yeah, incredible scenes there. I was so glad that she stood her ground and sort of like crushed, you know, the uh, their opinions. Like, uh, you know, I like to use the metaphor of a puppetum. Crushed it like a puppetum. Uh, anyway, um, the poll results are really interesting, Tamim, um, because it's kind of in line with um, uh, an, a Reuters Ipsos poll from the United States yesterday, which said 68% of United States people support a ceasefire. So this is really a global, you know, the people, uh, people are supporting it. But, you know, this is like you said, it is an indication that the people have their conscience in the right place, Tamim. But it's also on the other side, on the other hand, an indication of the undemocratic nature of our so-called democracies. Um, it is an indication and evidence that really the people's voices are less important than the voices of what, you know, just Kyle just said, the people who hold contracts with Israel and with the United States military, for example, their voices and those lobby groups have more power than the vast majority of people across the world. And so this is a moment for reckoning um, around the narrative of liberal democracy being this, you know, the only system that um, that is, you know, that is recognizing people's voices when actually it seems as though it is an exercise to put some sand in the eyes of the people. It's an eye wash to create a sense of participation when actually the ruling class, you know, the wealthiest people are calling the shots in all these Western countries. And that's why they engage in highly undemocratic, highly, you know, anti-human activities globally, right? So whether it is currently in Palestine, where, like you said, people are dying, children are dying in every five minutes or so, 
We also seeing a conflict in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is formerly a Belgian colony where millions of um, you know Congolese people were killed during King Leopold's time, and the people who didn't um, sort of obey his um, his directives were their limbs were cut off, and then following the independence, they got an amazing leader called Patrice Lumumba, uh, who was an anti-colonial pan-Africanist leader. And he was assassinated by the same powers who committed genocide in DRC. And thereafter, after he was assassination, multiple puppet governments in DRC, uh, you know, selling selling out. Obviously, you know, no other leader will be allowed to to run these countries because the because the Western uh, ruling class, the capitalist class, want their hands in you know the cobalt mines and the other resources there. So it is a world that is still dominated by you know the neoliberal capitalist ruling class and backed by the biggest military in human history, which is the United. United States military, which has over, you know, like 800 bases across the world. And if you consider their allies bases, then it's over a thousand bases across the world. Like they've basically colonized the entire uh, Pacific region where they've conducted um, um, nuclear tests. And they consider it, like Aramarata said last in our last podcast as a floating aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific. So this is a force that is ruling most of the affairs of the world. It is what is standing in our way from grassroots progress um, around the world, right? So for example, where I'm from in Kerala, after independence, we got a communist government um, as a first government in, in my state. And um, you know, unsurprisingly, CIA was there, right? So this happens everywhere, anywhere the people make any progress towards achieving their rights, towards collectivizing the resources to use their resources for the good of the struggling people. They come in and make sure that that doesn't happen and make sure that their resources are privatized for the interests of profits. So... It is a moment where we can understand that, you know, people aren't bad, like capitalism makes us believe all people are selfish or something. Actually, human nature is something else. We do have feelings for our fellow human beings. What is corrupting the world is not human beings, common people. It is the system, the imperialist system, um, which is continuously, you know, wants to generate profit. And the way to generate profit is through domination and colonization and so forth. And that is what is standing in our way um, in this in this crisis and in, in crises across the world. So I just wanted to add that, that in fact, yes, it is a hopeful moment. You know, the, the poll gives us hope, but at the same time, it reveals the roadblocks we face in actually actualizing the desires and the hopes and the dreams of people across the world. There's something that you said there, which I kind of want to swing back around to in, in regards to the current conflict around you know, throwing sand in the eyes of the people um, and the way that information has been used uh, to do that. Because I think one of the ways in which narratives have changed this time is, as you said, you know, it's not about one people being bad. Uh, they they tried that pretty early on for, with Gaza, uh, and it just hasn't landed this time. Uh, and it seems that the new approach to the discourse is to either just not carry it in media at all, or create the sense that it's impossible 
Oh, you know, and you know, it's so complex, it's so complex. Oh, it's such a hard situation. Oh, there's nothing you can do. They're trying to crush the hope out of people now, more so than they're trying to activate people on the ground in the way that they were able to uh, uh to to a larger extent um during uh, the Iraq war. Having Yeah, um Tamim, can I ask you, um, you've been commenting on Western media's uh portrayal of of the of the catastrophe that's going on, the genocide that's going on in Gaza. Can you talk about that? What is your perspective on how the media is presenting this issue? Yeah, I mean, that is a very interesting question. It's weird. <laughs> so we have the media collectively agreeing on a on a single framing, single narrative, and you cannot you cannot challenge it. So for them Israel has the right to defend itself. That's it. That is the overall framing, and everything else it just it it, it revolves around this framing. So we've been approached, like me, myself, and many other Palestinians in the community here, just for the sake of balance, because you know when they talk about it, they need to bring a Palestinian and another side. So they bring you just to just to comment on the framing that they have, but they don't bring you to actually listening to you and trying to present your your side of things. Uh, um, yep. So, Tamim, you were on an RNZ interview recently. Did they cut out some of the parts that you said? Did yeah. they censor you? Yeah, exactly. So, so the framing is, this is a war between Israel and Hamas. Israel has the right to defend itself and it's, it's wiping out Hamas. So, this is the the, like the official narrative or framing of the government plus the media and anything else just doesn't matter it's just collateral damage and they don't ac- they don't ac- accept that there's a genocide and they're going look i'm not denying there isn't a fight an actual fight between hamas and israel you know i mean irrespective of 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 what is the the balance of power, but yes, there's there's an actual battle between them. But there's another war, which is the big war from Israel on Palestinians. So for us Palestinians, when we say war, we're talking about the 75 year old struggle. So this is for us, this is the war. Now, what happens every few years? We call it an Arabic battle. So a battle is like right now. So the, a battle, you know, like an episode within a the overall wars so for us the war is the 75 year war from israel and palestinians throughout this time there's like a slow pace genocide underway underway all the time it gets in- intensified at some stages in 2014 or 20 uh, 21 on you know these major wars this is a period where it gets in- intensified but otherwise the, the genocide is, is ongoing, but at a slower pace that no one notices. So at the moment, we're seeing an int- intensified genocide, very, very uh, high-paced genocide that no one can ignore. So what we're seeing, seeing from the media, they're trying to avoid certain narratives like genocide. They want just they don't want to talk about it. They want to cut it out. There's no genocide. They're denying a genocide that everyone can see. And it's funny because people can see it, you know, social media is there. People can see it on Facebook and TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter. There's no hiding it. Mm-hmm. But our media, they just deny it because for them, they want to stick to the narrative. Oh, this is Israel versus Hamas war. So the genocide is one part of it. The other the other censorship is around the, the, the ceasefire uh, uh, 
call. So for for I, I said today, it's the new C word, the ceasefire. No one wants to talk about it. And the minute you bring up ceasefire, oh, are you calling for a genocide? No, I'm trying to stop a genocide. You know, ceasefire is the opposite yeah. <laughs> of a genocide. So for them, a ceasefire, that means, I don't know, like you, you want to wipe out Israel. While what's happening right now is Israel is wiping out, not Hamas, is wiping out uh, Palestinians, the, the people. You know, Hamas, they, they didn't give up. They're still fighting. The one who's suffering right now is is actually Palestinians. And it's obvious the war is on them. Every every single battle or, you know, intensified <laughs> genocide or intensified violence from Israel and Palestinians, it's about deterrence. So something happens, like, you know, there's always Palestinian resistance and pushback to, to Israel's policies. Palestinian, Palestinian resistance, throughout the history, Palestinian resistance will uh, achieve something. And Israel tries to punish Palestinians for that. Not punish the resistance, resistance fighters, punish the people of Palestine, the, 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 you know, the people, in order to stop them from repeating this. Because as a Palestinian, they expect it just to die quietly without any resistance. So, so Palestinian resistance does something, and this a huge violence erupts. They keep kill, 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 killing people, Israelis, until until uh, the world steps in, then it stops that. So, so every episode of violence. The world gives Israel a room to maneuver, a room to restore that deterrence. And Israel, they just kill as many people as they can within that room, within that window, until it gets too much. You know, the, the pressure builds up on the entire world, entire kind of leaders of the world. So they ask Israel, okay, now we cannot, we cannot uh, uh, keep this going because, you know, our people are going mad, going to this yeah. thing in the streets. Now, at the moment, that room is much bigger than before because before because the response from the uh, uh, resistance on October 7th was like nothing we saw before. So, so the room given to Israel to restore that deterrence is much wider now. And if you are watching the international news, I think you mentioned this, Kyle, it's a changing, like the leader's attitude towards this is a changing because they're realizing they can no longer keep the pressure, uh, sorry, uh, uh, resist the pressure internally. So things are moving fast and Israel is losing that room or that window of opportunity, you know, to, to kill as many Palestinians mm. as they can. Now, what is what is weird here is usually New Zealand reaction is ahead of the Western countries, like while well, yes, it's still in line with other Western countries, but usually we are more uh, more shy than them. I don't know what's the right word. Like, you know, I mean, less extreme than the US, UK, and Britain. So we're just slightly behind them. This time, we're just taking the extreme position. Like you would expect New Zealand to have a slightly less extreme position than the US, but this time we're just like them. And this is interesting because at one stage, that window of opportunity will finish the U.S. will tell Israel, okay, that's enough. And it is shame when that time comes in that New Zealand didn't make that call earlier than the U.S. You know, it's going to, history will not forget this, will not will not forgive New Zealand for that position. So, so I th as a New Zealander now saying, you know, it's shame that my country, New Zealand, is, is taking that role, being behind uh, everyone else and just letting the genocide carries on without without doing any or taking any principal uh, position. Mm -hmm. So 
with Tamim, yeah, from I just, the media. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, like, just staying on that, uh, you know, train of thought that you had, this is a recurring thing, right? So, you know, the Palestinians make a little bit of gains and then they are punished. And then the international opinion comes in and then it stops, you know, the brutality when it becomes too much. So what if that happens right now? Right. So if there is a ceasefire, um, then that gives Western countries space to say, oh, wow, look at Israel. You know, they listen to the global protests. They're amazing. They're the only democracy in in Middle East, they stop. You're gonna make me sick, Josephine. But... No, this is what they're going <laughs> know, to frame it as. They, this is what they were measured. They stopped it, and then what? And then what? What about the destruction that happened? The wiping out, the you know, the raising of people's homes, livelihoods, land, everything, and you know, their their families, the children, everything, and now. Now what? Obviously, is Israel going to give back the land that they've now invaded? They've went and planted um Israeli flag on top of the Al-Shifa hospital, which they bombarded multiple times, uh, killing p- medical personnel, patients, um, you know, ambulances and so forth. And so it's like, what's what's next if ceasefire happens uh, that is something that worries me because i i'm not very optimistic that if ceasefire is our main objective then you know is it just going to be a repetition of these atrocities again yeah well i mean ceasefire is the just the immediate demand but obviously it's not the mm. solution because at the moment our people they are facing genocide so we want to stop this genocide just before before we can talk about anything else. And and that is where the call for a ceasefire has come in. Like, you know, we need yeah. to stop the killing. Then we ke- we can talk about other things as well. Uh because if we can if we keep going to the after the ceasefire, there's the besiege of Gaza and there are other requirements. At the bottom of this is the occupation, the overall occupation, which is the seventy-five years old problem. So that is the root root cause of everything. But in order to get there, you know, there are steps. So so the ceasefire is a practical, pragmatic call at the moment because this is this is the only way to stop the the killing, you know, the five yeah. ch- one child every time ten minutes and one Palestinian person every every ten minutes every but five only, minutes. But, but it's, it's only a first step. It's isn't first it? a step. Yeah, correct. And I was wondering the other day, the reality so since we started talking about the ceasefire call, the reality on the gra- ground uh, has it changed. So Israel invaded, ground in, uh, the ground invasion is started, and Israel is now directly occupying areas in, in Gaza. And we heard a few calls from Israeli politicians saying that, oh, no, we are, we, we are here to stay. And actually, we are here just to conquer the entire Gaza and just get rid of Palestinians uh, for once and all. Uh, yeah, that is that is something a ceasefire won't solve alone. But ceasefire, at least, it will stop the the further killing. But yeah. then we need to talk about okay, well, ceasefire. But are we gonna like are are Palestinians going to live with tanks just sitting in front of their schools, in front of their uh, uh, shops? And that's definitely not not a solution. But even even like if they withdraw from Gaza, but then what about the blockade of Gaza? What about the discrimination? What about the economy so so there are there are many 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 questions but at the moment 
you know, people are getting getting bombed, bombarded every day, every every single second, every single minute. So so we just need to stop this for everything else to take a place. Uh, because yeah, we don't want to go back to October sixth because October sixth was it wasn't like the ideal uh, uh, situation. Uh, so we want we want we want to have really uh, ultimate solutions like mm. to resolve these underlying issues. Yeah, and that's why I'm kind of like yes, of course, like you know, people in the United States and New, New Zealand, sixty percent over sixty percent are agreeing with ceasefire. But are they willing to go beyond that, you know, is and probably what I'm thinking is this is the moment to raise awareness about those other steps that we need to take because there is a mobilization of, you know, human sort of emotions and solidarity with the Palestinian people, at least among the general population, if not the ruling class. So. You know, I often wonder if the ceasefire demand is actually a very moderate position because, you know, what we're seeing right now is Nakba 2 and people are being pushed through the highways into, you know, places that they don't want to be. And, you know, I remember there was a journalist in New York who went to um, the pro-Israel protests uh, after October 7th, and uh, he talked with the pro-Israel protesters, and they were saying, we need to raise Gaza to the ground. We need to make it like a car park. And it seems as though that that emotion actually is what is reflecting in the new Israel's policy. They are completely raising Gaza to the to the to the to the ground to a point where it looks like it's very unlikely people can even return, let alone to their original lands they were driven out of, including your parents and grandparents, Tamim. Um, they can't, I don't even think it's likely that they can return back to Gaza, you know, to the Gaza city regions where they have been completely raised, you know, completely um, raised to the bot to the ground. So yes, you know, the ceasefire is what we need at the moment, but at least to the listeners of one of 200, this is also a moment where we think beyond the ceasefire. What is beyond the ceasefire? What does justice mean? Like you said, Tamim, going back to um, ceasefire would be going back to before October 7, or it would be even worse because now so many people are homeless, right? So many people have lost their shelter, their food, their livelihoods, um, everything. So ceasefire is actually worse situation than uh, October 6. So, so it's also a moment for us to think, what is a resolution to this? And I feel like especially among young people across the world there's a a lot of hope and 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 i think you know we 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 should we should be using this opportunity to go beyond that discussion of ceasefire into what justice means and and also pressuring our governments towards that solution as well where people are living with rights and freedom and dignity like every other human being is inherently uh, deserves these rights right so it's uh, yeah i just wanted to like at least within our audience we need to go beyond that ceasefire narrative because israel will you know it they will the israel government is going to take advantage of it and uh, once the fire is ceased they will just go back to their attritional 
ethnic cleansing that you mentioned. It's an ongoing genocide. It's an ongoing war. It's periods of intensification and less intensification. And we need to end this whole cycle of violence. And perhaps we are the generation, Tamim, Kyle, that have the capacity to, to pressure or put maximum pressure to do that. I mean, it's not just us, of course. There's so many, the generations before us, Leila Khalid, I mean, all these amazing leaders have fought for it. And I think we need to carry their baton on to the future. What do you think, Tamim? Oh, uh, 100%. And yeah, I mean, we definitely need to make sure we just, we don't just call for a, for an immediate ceasefire. Yes, we call for an immediate ceasefire because this is the practical step that we need to do right now, but we need to link it to the overall struggle. And that's why we need to keep talking about Nakba. Even even now, you know, in the middle of this intensified genocide, it's still useful to talk about Nakba, 75 years old, because what we see now is just a continuation of that story. And we need we need to think about you're you're right. We need to think about the day after ceasefire. Like are we can I just stop and Okay, we achieved this fine. That's it. No, we want to maintain that momentum. I think sometimes it's it's hard to look at the positive things among all the horrible things that are there. But you know, there's always there's always a, a shed of light, or, or a, you know, maybe one one a drop of water <laughs> to look at in the empty glass, right? Yeah. So over over the over the history of this struggle, Israel has spent decades and decades distorting the truth. To the point where people look at things, uh, people dying in Palestine, and they oh, it's complicated because you know everything, all that narrative that is Israeli created, and it's just in one month all of that distortion it just disappeared. People they could see it right in the front of their eyes. So so just think about that damage uh, uh, Israel achieved to itself. You know, just self self on. Uh, they just distorted all of that. The number of people who told me in the past a few weeks that actually they had no idea how bad mm. things were until they, they saw it right now. So what Israel is doing has radicalized hordes of people, which is great because you know people can now see it in front of their eyes. So we want to keep that momentum, that fraction beyond the ceasefire and move it to more strategic goal. Uh, so yeah, w- without losing sight of the immediate uh, uh, demand because you know sometimes yes you need to think strategic but you don't want to lose sight of the immediate step that you can do otherwise people will feel oh yeah, it's not going to yeah. happen right you need a path right yeah you need to path yeah so yes ceasefire and we need to think about the occupation because ceasefire will not solve everything it will solve the immediate problem so so, so you are quite right it's, it's important that we keep focusing uh, uh, on, on both uh, strategic and tactical yeah what's been quite maddening to me to I think there are enough people like in in this kind of circle of progressive or left wing thought or whatever you want to call it that I, is not driving me insane because I can touch base with people who are also seeing this occur. But is the the huge number of people who are in Western institutions, so people in the UN, people in NGOs, you know, like Doctors Without Borders have been particularly um, present um, doing social media releases, and most of these people. Uh, one, calling for a ceasefire, um, but secondarily uh, talking about the apartheid system um, in Israel, uh, are talking about the need to end the occupation. This is this is here. It's being talked about by experts. You've got historians of genocide. You've got 
Holocaust survivors. You've got humani- like humanitarian organizations who have seen this play out previously, and they're all on the same page about this. They they are all saying kind of what you've been saying, Josephine, what you've been saying to me. Uh, this information is out there from people withstanding who are you know experts in their field who are, who are who are pushing for justice here and not just a ceasefire. But not even that <laughs> is getting platformed on most media yeah. outlets. It's it's obscene. And then alongside that, you have you know you mentioned some people from the pro-Israel uh, protests, Josephine. But you've got people in the Knesset saying this stuff. You know, you've got people who are ministers. You've got Netanyahu yeah. out there uh, invoking Amalek, you know, like which is a call to genocide, essentially. You've got the uh, the UN spokesperson in, uh, for Israel flying over to the United States to talk to Christian Zionists about the prophecy of Isaiah. This is all, like, <laughs> this is all happening. Like, we... You're finding these things come through in little bits and pieces where they're reported in some uh, small outlet or in uh, some of the progressive Israeli outlets like Haaret. You know, this information is out there and that's not getting covered either. So you've got what these experts are saying about the humanitarian situation, about the need for a, a change in uh, the the state of the occupation, Um and that it's a genocide. And then you've got the Israeli government and Israeli spokespeople and Israeli like pro-Israel uh, supporters of protests calling actively for a genocide, saying, we're going to ethnic cleanse this place. This is Nakbar 2.0. We're taking the whole north of Gaza. Everyone in uh, Gaza should go to Egypt. And neither of those things are being covered. And it's just... Like so, so the information is out there about what are the yeah. next steps after a ceasefire. You know, it's, it's there, it's available. And we know what the next steps after a ceasefire are from the Israel regime's perspective as well. And yet just, I don't even know if crickets is the right term to use here about how the media has been responded, responding to this, because, I mean, it's just outright disinformation, um, a lot of the stuff being published. It will be a line from the IDF saying, oh, yeah, we um, liberated the hospital. And he's like, no, but you've got <laughs> you've got Israeli media with a kill counter. You know, this is something that's actually happening. Uh, how can you how can you take this line? You know, you've got all right. What did I say today? It was Israeli soldiers having a concert before they go into Gaza uh, with this um, Israeli pop star, like just saying the most horrific slurs about people in Gaza. You know, that this is all out there and available. And yet somehow this very specific subset of people involved are the only available spokespeople. And and not only that, the only people who whose viewpoint can even be published um, a lot of the time. And also yeah. like <laughs> the pinkwashing, like Oh, I don't even yeah. Jesus <laughs> like we are doing this for love in the name of love. Um, there was a, a soldier standing atop the rubble where children have died and saying that we did this in the name of love. This is the warped, distorted. I mean, this is an age old colonial strategy, right? To say that these people are primitive, they don't have liberal rights, and therefore that is justification for mass murder and ethnic cleansing. And and I mean, 
I hear a lot of people saying, you know, this has shifted something in me. I can no longer look at the West as a purveyor of mm -hmm. human rights to lecture other countries on human rights and international law. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I see those with hope. But at the same time, I've seen this before. People said this during Iraq. And, you know, again, we go back to earlier on and, you know, the, the sheer economic power of the ruling class and its reach in terms of Western media, it's so powerful that, you know, it does have the power to as to sort of like make these emotions kind of temporary. And because we are working people, we just have to survive and, you know, live our lives and we go about um, without being able to actually dismantle these power structures, which is the tragedy of this situation. Yeah, I mean, part of this is the the outcome of decades of dehumanizing Palestinians by Israel, decades of dehumanization campaign of Palestinians by Israel in the Western media and the Western, sorry, countries like media, culture, education, history, everything. The outcome is of this is in the Western mind, they don't think of Palestinians as humans, literally speaking. There's zero empathy with, with the Palestinian people, not sympathy, empathy, zero. So in the Western mind, like autopilot, they don't think of Palestinians as existing humans who, you know, who have their own experience, their own perspective. So so what happens right now? Like imagine we are looking, we're watching live in real time, bunch of armed people in tanks going to another place, conquering, physically conquering a hospital, hospital, you know, with thousands of people inside it and they're taking over the hospital they're killing people they're terrorizing them they're besieging them no food fuel water can get into the hospital a shifa hospital for a few days everyone is watching this and somehow no one is saying this is literal terrorism <laughs> you know you're conquering a fucking hospital so i mean you know you're terrorizing yeah. patient people patient uh, patients and wanted people in the and families sheltering in the hospital there's no there's no other way to describe this other than terrorism is outright terrorism but the problem is in the western mind you know the the average western mind is they don't empathize with the palestinian person they don't think that this hospital is for normal people like me who go to this hospital when we need it they they don't they don't think of they don't picture that experience and all they think about ah oh, Israel is fighting Hamas so whatever Israel says about it it will just stick in their mind and you know what even even if Israel was fighting a Hamas somewhere in the hospital but that this hospital says normal people thousands of them so can't you think like can't you picture can't you picture like uh, two armies fighting in your own town and they are denying you from going to your own hospital. You know that's outrageous because you know it's, you got you guys go fight somewhere else. This is my hospital. Don't come here. But but in the Western mind, that human being, human experience doesn't exist, and they they don't they don't empathize with it. And it's just outrageous because we we see it on the media, like on social media, it's a changing. People are starting to realize, oh shit, this is this is too much. But on our major media, still people they don't get it. Like I was watching yesterday on one news segment which i shared on on twitter they're talking about the storming of the of the hospital and it's crazy like first of all they they talked about that scene where 
the Israeli army, they're taking pictures inside the parliament, which is Palestine parliament, you know, it's just normal parliament building, a very, very modest one, but but it's a parliament. So on the one news, they said uh, the Hamas, the Hamas parliament, it's not a Hamas parliament, you know. It's it's the parliament. It's like calling it beehive, the the labor beehive. It's not, you know, it's 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 the mm-hmm. people's. So they said, oh, uh, the the Hamas parliament. Then they stormed the uh, the hospital where Hamas is uh, uh, sheltering, just underneath it. You know, it's so complete lie, proven to be a lie. And uh, we saw a, a video by the Hamas-run Minister of Health. Then they they uh, uh, they showed they showed the babies you know the premature babies on TV you know people could see it and they said oh we couldn't verify this oh come on I mean you're looking at them <laughs> in front of you what, what couldn't you verify just the entire framing is just put in a way to erase any drop of empathy yeah, the listener I might have. That. So you you mentioned how New Zealand One News said um, Hamas is claiming that these babies uh, were, um, you know, without, because there's no electricity, they were, this is Hamas allegation. They're presenting it as a Hamas allegation rather than a fact that they can see before their bare eyes, a fact that, you know, the Israeli government themselves said we are cutting water, fuel, electricity, everything. And they still are calling this an allegation. And that there is exactly, is that, that's the thing that you want to mention. That's, that's what you're getting at is everything from the side of the Palestinians is seen with with suspicion, is not seen as truth. And this is all part of the dehumanization of the Palestinian people. Correct. Yeah. And as a journalist, you know, I mean, I, the example is well known. If you hear someone saying it's raining outside and someone else, oh, it's not raining outside. So as a journalist, you don't report on, on both sides. You just go outside and check if it's raining or not. And you report on that. Like, yes, you can say what they're saying. But again, you can report on the fact if you can, if you're able to verify it. But just crazy. It's just lazy. I don't know. I mean, lazy journalism or just dehumanization. It's just, it's, it's bizarre, honestly. And I don't, I don't know what to do about it. It's just, yeah. Too it's, much. <laughs> it's a struggle, and like, actually, I should say, if we keep if we keep going at this rate, we're going to be heading for for two hours plus. If we get into many more um, specific discussions, so I did want to leave you with the last word on this, Tamim, and what you'd like to see in the New Zealand context, um, both from media and and politicians, and maybe we'll we'll leave it there after that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the most immediate or urgent call as the ceasefire so we want people to keep calling for an immediate ceasefire because at this rate just keep it in mind every five minutes one palestinian is killed every 10 minutes one palestinian child is killed at the moment at this current rate so we have been on this show for one hour and a half that is nine 18 palestinians including nine children have been killed at this rate while you know while we're talking so please if you're listening to this please keep this in your mind and keep fighting as much as you can for immediate ceasefire call your mp talk about it on twitter talk about it on facebook on tiktok and everywhere just just keep fighting for it go to the street on on the weekend saturday sunday just you know in your local area find a protest just keep doing stuff don't don't be don't be a passive observer of this genocide. This is 
this is number one. And, you know, we, we did this poll to confirm the public support and public opinion. So we want people actually to use the data. So we, we're giving them talking points. We're giving them stats, facts. Mm -hmm. So we want people to use these, uh, the, the results of the poll. And, you know what, call your local MP. If they're national act, I don't care. Just give them a call and tell them, hey, Mr. MP, you are from this party. And majority of voters from your own party are with an immediate ceasefire. And that is the right thing to do for your own party. So we want you to talk to your party leader and ask them basically to sort their act and just to listen to the majority of their own voters, you know, just, just about you. So just think about it from your own perspective, because that is the democrat democratic choice and the moral choice as well. So these are the real actions that we really want people to do right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamim. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And Thank you so much for that wonderful uh, conversation, Tamim, and your insights. And Thank you for doing that. You know, you um, got it through. We got a poll now. We got some evidence to base our claims on. So thank you for that as well. Absolutely. Just go and talk about it. And yeah, listen, uh, listen to what Tamim has said. Uh, follow uh, him on social media. Where can they find you, Tamim? Oh, so Tamim Olive. <laughs> Uh, and share this episode as well. Um, let people know that there is data out there, um, that there is a strong uh, support across communities for an immediate ceasefire. Let uh, get other people involved or organize with them, uh, drag them along uh, to one of the marches, um, use whatever means you have to do that. Uh, yeah. The marches I've been to have been incredibly positive. Um, there's a really great community spirit. It's growing in strength in all our cities. It's growing in strength. And I just want to say the slogan that, you know, children were saying during the march. And it's the shame that it's not being covered. The children were saying, hey, Biden, what'd you say? How many kids did you kill today? And, you know, it's like the, the there is an awakening happening. And yeah, while we talk about ceasefire, I also, you know, urge people to think beyond that. What is beyond that? What has been the cycle of violence and how can we stop the cycle of violence? Perfect. Thank you again, Tamim. Thank you, Josephine. We'll catch you on the weekend. We'll, we'll cover this further alongside any other current events that pop up in New Zealand politics. Share, like, subscribe. We'll catch you next time. Forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell